art is not for me something that is limited to uh, art galleries where only the monic class you know would drink their prosecco wine and look at art and marvel at the creativity that's all well and good this is sachin and this is eric welcome to luminary kitchen table style conversations with some of the world's brightest minds exploring boundaries of human knowledge join us on a pursuit to transmit intuition and ideas find us at luminary.fm or on twitter at luminaryfm we'd love to hear from you today's guest is chika okeke agulo a leading and award-winning artist art historian art curator writer and blogger He is a professor and director of graduate studies at the Department of Art and Archaeology at Princeton University, specializing in classical, modern, and contemporary African and African diaspora art history and theory. In our conversation with Chika, we cover his journey of creative expression and adaptation while operating under exogenous constraints. His contributions to the rise and prominence of African and African diaspora art, the role of art in portraying the human existence, especially as it relates to individual agency and socio-political circumstances, including the Black Lives Matter movement, and the impact of technology on art education and the art market. inspired you to dedicate your life to the arts and especially why focus on african and african diaspora art i can't say that at any particular point i decided to dedicate my life to what i do now because i've traveled a long way uh from my time uh training in a Catholic seminary um, with every desire to become a priest. Um, and when that um, did not happen, I turned my attention to becoming a scientist, I actually applied to college, you know, what we call university. Uh, in Nigeria at the time to study industrial chemistry and within the the year of applying and being um admitted into the program at the University of Ilorin in Nigeria I changed my mind one more time uh to study fine arts and that's basically what i did i applied to the university of nigeria in soka to study art meanwhile i had up until that moment not spent one day in an art class except wow. for the kind of art you did in primary school um so i had no um particular long-term plan to become an artist but i eventually did 
I studied sculpture and art history at the University of Nigeria in Soka and graduated in uh, 1990. Uh, but before then, I was in an environment where artists were poets, were critics, um, wrote nonfiction, and so forth. That was the kind of intellectual climate that I met at the University of Nigeria. And that became part of me. And so upon graduation in 1990 uh, from Soka, I went to Lagos for a year to teach at the Yaba College of Technology where I taught drawing. But in the meantime, I spent quite a bit of my time then writing art criticism for uh, news magazines in Lagos, African Concord, uh, The Guardian, The Daily Times, and, and so forth. And, and so that was when you, one could say that I began to have long-term interest in art and art criticism. And soon enough, I ventured into curating when I curated Lucho Keke's uh, retrospective in 1993. And then from there, I moved on to curate other shows uh, at the White Chapel in London and so forth. Um, and I kept on working as an artist. I returned to Nsoka, the University of Nigeria, and uh, was teaching sculpture and drawing. Um, and I had at that point, no intention of not being uh, a professional artist. And I had a, quite a decent career at that point with my exhibitions in Lagos and elsewhere and garnering national attention and so forth. But again, my career took another uh, turn, I think in 1996, during the military dictatorship of Sani Abacha. Um, my university was pretty much um, compromised by the military government and um, some of us refused to accept that. And eventually 13 of us were dismissed from the university for not um, accepting the dictatorial status quo that had basically become the norm uh, at my university. And so I was forced to leave, um, actually forced to leave Nigeria at the time in late 1997. And that was when this whole business of art history started. Apart from the much that I was doing as an artist and curator and critic, uh, leaving Nigeria meant um, acquiring a student visa to the United States, which was the place I could go at that point when, um, you know, were being hunted basically uh, by the uh, the police and so forth. Um, and so I, I left Nigeria under that uh, circumstance and with a student visa I felt that the closest thing to what I did at the time was art history and so I applied to the um, University of South Florida in Tampa enrolled in the MA program in uh, in art history worked with 
a colleague uh, and friend of mine at the time, uh, Professor Olu Oguibe, who was a professor at the uh, University of South Florida at the time. And because I was already writing art criticism uh, of the work of contemporary Nigerian and African artists up until then, and I was curating exhibitions of their work, it made sense that uh, enrolling in art history, I would divert my attention to a similar subject, which is modern and contemporary African art. And so that's basically how I became an art historian of modern and contemporary African art. From, from Tampa, I moved to Emory, where I uh, did my PhD. And um, after that, in 2004, I moved to uh, Pennsylvania State University at State College, and from there to Princeton, where I am uh, presently um, for the past 10 years or so. And so I, at no point, except as I said earlier, um, at no point really did I make any firm de decision to become an art historian. Um, I, actually, I still think of myself first and foremost as an artist um, who does art history. And I happen to uh, do it well enough to um, have uh, had some a success in, in, in doing it. How was it growing up in Nigeria as a young student of art? It was it was a thrilling experience. It was a most rewarding experience being an art student at the University of Nigeria in Soka. It, it, it's something that I I cannot trade for anything else. Um, at the time when I was a student in, uh, from the mid-1980s, I entered Soka in 1985, um, you had these very highly respected scholars and artists. Uh, Chino Achebe was, was there. Um, Obiora Odechuku, who was one of my teachers, uh, a painter. Ella Natsui was one of my teachers. Uh, the the well-known sculptor working in the contemporary art scene today. Um, you had amazing poets who were associated with the with the university, uh, and so being in that environment, I think quite prepared me for the different turns that I have made uh, in my um, in my career so far. Um, but of course, we were also living under military dictatorships at the time. So one cannot um, overestimate the, the difficulty of living in, in Nigeria at the time on a socio-political and economic level. But um, along with that was the incredible intellectual atmosphere that Nsoka uh, made possible uh, that I derived so much sustenance in, along with many of my friends and peers at the time. And when you look around today and see how many of us that were art students in that program are practicing in the United States today as among some of the most recognized names 
in the business of art history. Um, it, it says something about how remarkable that, that program was. In what way did the political environment inhibit your creative expression? Um, a side note to this is that um, the University of Nigeria and Soka is in eastern Nigeria, and eastern Nigeria was what was called Republic of Biafra between 1967 and 1970, during which time there was a war, uh, a civil war between the rest of Nigeria and eastern Nigeria, named for that brief period Republic of Biafra. And so that university was devastated by the war, but it was rebuilt by uh, individuals who survived the war. Um, and so the memory of that war had a significant impact in the artistic and literary production that we came to associate with uh, with Nsoka. And, and so what you find then uh, was that quite a bit of the work had sociopolitical um, commitment. And I think that that had a lot to do with the experience of war. Mind you that many of the faculty at the time uh, were young soldiers of, in Biafra, for instance. And those of us who were students had family um, that survived the war. I myself was a Biafran child. Um, I, you know, most of my friends did not survive the war. And so that had a deep impact on the tone uh, and tenor of work that came out of Unsoka. But it was also that on the uh, existential level that, for instance, the 1980s was when you had the IMF imposed structural adjustment regimes across uh, Africa. And that had a deep impact as well on um, things as simple as acquiring art materials, because these things were banned. Uh, importation of art materials were banned. And what that did was that in the art department, uh, faculty and students had to um, think of alternative means uh, for making work. They uh, had to uh, look to local resources, for instance, um, to make sculpture, to make painting, uh, and so forth. And so these dire political and economic circumstances in some uh, significant way um, really contributed to the uh, serious uh, and fundamental work that artists uh, associated with Nsoka uh, were uh, making at the time. Uh, and so being art student at Nsoka meant an awareness of the difficult socioeconomic and political circumstances of the country 
Um, you know, mind you that under that situation, most of the time there was no power. Um, and so what you do as a painter, as a student of painting, when your art studio didn't have electricity, right? When the sculpture studio didn't have power for you to use any of the mechanical tools at your disposal. And, and so a, a lot of work that I did, for instance, had to rely on um, hand tools as a sculptor. So I had to carve. I had to work with um, simple tools in order to still be able to um, practice as a, as a student and eventually as a sculptor. Um, and so that was uh, some of the uh, circumstances of being uh, a student in the 1980s Nigeria. Unfortunately, not a lot has changed in terms of the fortunes of students uh, working, whether at Osaka or anywhere else. Um, in, in the country, but that's a story for another day. Uh, the important thing for me is that um, growing up in, in Nigeria at that time meant um, being able to make do with little, uh, being able to extract art out of the roughness of um, our lives. Um, but at the same time, uh, the thrilling, creative, and artistic atmosphere made possible by human beings, in spite of their their their, their circumstances, that was um, something that um, deeply shaped my own attitude to work, my vision of um, the artistic life, um, and in fact what it means to be an intellectual today. And so when um, you look across my work as an art historian, as a critic, you will find that there's frequently um, an underlying investment in the political. Because as someone who was born a few months before the Civil War in Nigeria and who had to live through those uh, years of dictatorships and who had to be uh, compelled to leave my homeland um, for the United States, the, the reality of the political never uh, left me. And, and, and so it has been what, how could one, uh, giving these life experiences, still practice as an artist, still practice as an intellectual, still practice as an art historian. Um, and so these are some of the uh, circumstances of uh, being uh, a young artist in Nigeria who eventually had to make a career in the arts, um, both overseas and uh, in Nigeria, because it has been very important to me as well that after these many years of living in the United States, that I maintain a significant and important connection to uh, the, uh, the art industry, to the art world 
of Nigeria. Because um, without that, it would feel a lot more um, uh, alienated, you know, practicing in the United States alone. What are the origins of African and African diaspora art? How do you characterize the discipline? Um, well, there are different ways of thinking about, about the discipline. If one thinks about art history as a discipline, the, it was not always the case that the work of um, African artists were giving due attention. In, in fact, the, much of the interest in African art and artists for decades was, of course, in what one might call traditional African art or classical or ancient uh, African art. That is art that was collected by Europeans uh, from the African continent mostly during the colonial uh, period, art that was stolen, looted, pillaged from various parts of the continent, or decently acquired in a few cases. Uh, that was what uh, European scholarship, including art history, was uh, interested in. Either that or in the lives of and cultures of Africa that they thought was different from those of Europe and the West. And, and so you had um, anthropologists and art historians, few of them that um, you could identify as art historians, invested in this, uh, in this Africa, the Africa that European artists during the early 20th century um, fell in love with the Picassos and Matisses and so forth. But the work that I do has a more recent history in the sense that um, up until uh, the mid-1990s, you really didn't have a field within art history that focused on modern and contemporary African art. Much of this work has had to be done by Africans themselves, young African scholars, critics, curators, who decided to make a difference, who decided to insist on the significance and importance of the work that artists living within and outside of the continent were making work that had very little visibility in the West and in the international scene. And you can track very definite moments when this happened. Between the establishment of the magazine Revue Noir in Paris um, in the early 90s uh, to the beginning of our own magazine, Unca Journal of Contemporary African Art, that was founded by my friend and colleague Okuye Nwezo in 1994, um, along with Olo Wibe and Salah Hassan, presently at Cornell, um, 
these two magazines uh, did a lot. Review Noir in, the, in terms of providing a lot of uh, visual evidence of very significant work uh, being produced in Africa, you know, during the 80s and 90s. And our own journal, in terms of um, providing a platform for serious writing on this work. Now, mind you that it just so happens that any art that is not written about by important or at least by writers that people are willing to listen to, that art never achieves um, a status of importance. And so we were fully aware of that. And since um, Europeans, Western scholars were not really that interested in writing about work Africans were making in, on the continent and outside, we had to do it ourselves. We had to find and establish platforms for such writing to begin. And that's pretty much what we did. And so when you look at the landscape, um, you will see that these two magazines played a fundamental role in what we call the discipline of modern and contemporary African and African diaspora art today. Continuing on that theme, you've published a book called Postcolonial Modernism that's been uh, very well received, won numerous awards. What inspired you to write it? It was an organic thing, really. Uh, that book had its origins in a small, at the time, you know, not so significant discussion I had with Professor Obiora Udechuku, who was my teacher at Onsoka, and later on my colleague, because at the end of my training at Onsoka, I was hired um, as uh, a young, you know, faculty. And he was the one who suggested to me that I curate a retrospective of Uche Okeke, who is no uh, relative uh, of mine. Uh, Uche Okeke was um, known as the, if you will, the, the leading figure in the Nsoka school. In other words, he was the, the artist credited for providing the intellectual platform within which artists that are today associated with the art program at the University of Nigeria and Soka, he made it happen when he came there in 1970. Now, I never met Uchokeke up until that time, but, and, and he had retired to his uh, hometown at Nemo, and very few people saw him regularly. I wasn't one of those. In fact, I had not met him at the time. And so when Obiara Odechuku suggested that I, you know, should consider organizing an exhibition of Ucho Keke's work, this was 
you know, an incredible suggestion. I was up until then writing art criticism. I hadn't curated any exhibition at all. And to be asked to organize an exhibition of this legendary figure uh, was such uh, an enormous um, task for me. But I did it. In 1993, the retrospective opened at the Goethe Institute um, in Lagos. And in the course of researching Uche Okeke for that exhibition, I came across a lot of uh, information that seemed to not jive with so much that I had been told, I had read or seen about his generation of Nigerian artists, meaning artists who came uh, on the scene during the late 1950s and early 1960s, basically during Nigeria's uh, period of independence, political independence. Um, and, and so it was this interest in furthering the research I did for that retrospective in 1992-93 that I picked up when I came to the United States to study art history. And so when I um, arrived at Tampa, I wrote my MA thesis on the work of Obiara Odechukwu himself. He was uh, easily the, the most significant uh, figure in the area of painting and drawing within the Nsoka uh, school aside from Ucho Keke, who had retired at, at the time. And so I wrote my MA thesis on his work. And again, having done that research and written that MA thesis, and I could not return to Nigeria uh, because the military government um, was still, um, you know, hanging around, I decided to go on to a PhD and given the, the kind of work that you expected to do for a PhD, meaning work that has, um, you know, that involves archival research, that involves, you know, long period of, um, you know, research in archives and libraries and so forth. I decided to return to that project that began, but I, you know, saw a few uh, things that I needed to explore, but I did not have the opportunity. So when I went to Emory, I returned to that project that yielded the Uchokeke retrospective. And that was the research that eventually resulted in the post-colonial modernism book. Along the line, I had worked with my friend, Opie Mweza, who I mentioned was uh, the founder of UNCA Journal uh, of Contemporary African Art, which we uh, co-edit. Um, I worked with him on a project, on an exhibition project called The Short Century, Independence and Liberation Movement in Africa, 1945 to 1994. And that project 
allowed me to do further research on the work of Ucho Keke and his generation of Nigerian artists. But what I found was that although my primary interest was in the work of, you know, no more than six or seven artists who were um, colleagues and friends uh, at the Nigerian College of Art, Science and Technology in Zaria in northern Nigeria. They were the focus of this research and the eventual book. But what became increasingly evident to me was that they were only a part of an international network, a pan-African network of artists, writers, critics, dramatists, um, curators, and, 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 and so forth. And so it, it was also important for me to place them, that is Uchokeke and his colleagues in Nigeria, to place them within this wider international network, a network that I argue, of course, in my book, was made possible by this movement toward decolonization of the continent. Uh, a moment when Africans, politicians, writers, and you know, sociologists and so forth, when they recognized the power of sovereignty, of political sovereignty, the significance of being free, that that does not simply mean political and economic independence, but it's also invariably entailed cultural independence, meaning how a people imagine themselves, how they see their world, how they build their worlds. And what you then see during this period was a constant and persistent questioning among this generation, whether they were in the Sudan or in Egypt or in Algeria or in Morocco, Nigeria, Senegal, Kenya, Ghana, wherever you looked, that they were asking similar questions. In other words, what would be the artistic and cultural equivalence of political and economic independence from Europe and the West? This was the question that motivated the work that we associate today with some of the most important literatures of the 20th century, whether it's Chino Achebe's Things Fall Apart, that is recognized today as one of the world's literary monuments. Or we look at the career of someone like Willis Shoinka, the first black Nobel laureate in literature. Or his colleagues um, in Ghana, Kofi Aidoho, um, and in Kenya, in Uganda, and elsewhere. The same kind of insistence on developing a literature that spoke to this condition of sovereignty. That's what you find 
in the work of Ucho Keke and his colleagues, Demas Mwoko, Bruce Onogra Bea, in Nigeria. And that's what you find when you go to, say, the Sudan in the work of Ibrahim El Salahi, who I consider, you know, the most important African artist of the 20th century. These were artists who, recognizing the moment that they were living in, young artists at the time, seized the day to begin to make work that uh, spoke to this period, to this moment, and in the process, inventing new images, new forms, things that you thought were only possible when you dissociated art from politics. Because this is what European modernism seemed to have convinced us about, that art that is alienated from its socio-political context uh, acquires a certain measure of freedom uh, and space within which it can then thrive. What the African artists of the 1950s and 60s told us is that that is not necessarily true. That in fact, an investment in the political in its own way becomes a very potent catalyst for important artistic production. And that's basically what I try to do in this book. Your uh, contribution to the Huffington Post blog on contemporary art and Black Lives Matter, you mentioned that the contemporary art seems to ignore the socio-political dynamics in the country. Historically, that may not have been the case. Sure. Why did you feel the need to write this article? Well, because that's um, something that has always interested me. I, I did mention my enduring investment in the relationship between art and politics. Uh, in fact, I tend to think of art as politics by other means. Um, and, and so it's a question that I always ask wherever I... Uh, find myself, whether it's in Nigeria or in the United States. Um, I was fully aware of, you know, two periods in the United States, two distinct periods in the 1920s um, during the Harlem, so-called Harlem Renaissance, when um, black artists in the United States emerged, you know, from the shadows artists, writers, poets, and, and so forth, um, under the uh, condition at the time, which was the Roaring Twenties, right? The, the period when America became a superpower after the First World War. The thriving American culture of the time also led to the efflorescence of um, African-American creativity, and uh, artistry at, at that moment. But what you see uh, happen to that period was, of course, you know, the, the 
um, the collapse of the economy, the Great Depression of the early 1930s, um, and the way that that in itself also produced an important uh, period in American art, not just African-American art, but American art. And that is the kind of art that attended to sociopolitical realism, which was the moment when the Mexican artists um, became very influential in America. And so today, when you go to many post offices, you will see these murals, these realistic murals that were produced during that period. So the difficulties of that period produced important work in American art, whether it's in photography, painting, and sculpture. And then you look at the 60s, during the civil rights movement, when black people, for the first time, this, you know, had, had, had it, basically. They, the political circumstances of the United States, uh, the lack of uh, political power or access to politics, in fact, not to talk of the very dire economic circumstances that black people had endured for decades, in fact, centuries, going back to uh, the, the period of slavery and Jim Crow, that this moment in the 1950s, but especially the 1960s during the civil rights movement, became a catalyst for unprecedented creativity among black people. And a lot of this work spoke to the to this period, which is what gave rise to what we, you know, what was called black art movement in the 1960s, where you find uh, people like Amiri Baraka, Jacob Lawrence, the younger artists among, among them, Faith Ringgold, Betty Saar, and so forth. Artists who decided that art had to address, in fact, had to play a role in the anticipated sociopolitical transformation of the society. Now, that was the 1960s. Of course, um, the, the, the period that we found ourselves um, at the end of the Obama presidency in the United States, uh, the resurgence, as it were, of, you know, some of the monsters that, you know, some thought had been banished from the American psyche. The, the monster of racism and racial oppression uh, in the form of, you know, the incredible uh, situation that, uh, that we saw in, in this country, police shootings and so forth, and of course the rise of the Black Lives Matter movement. Now, for me and for a lot of people, the Black Lives Matter movement was the closest thing to the civil rights movement of, of the 1960s. And so my interest in that article was basically if the civil rights movement in the 1960s provided uh, the space 
for creativity that was allied with to uh, with this um, with this movement. How come we are not seeing similar uh, phenomenon at this time? At least at the very top level of contemporary African American art. That was basically what I was wondering. Where are the artists? We've seen sportsmen and women, we've seen um, musicians and so forth, even filmmakers address the issues of the day that had been, uh, you know, made possible, that had been encouraged by the Black Lives Matter movement. I was interested in, in, in this question, where are the artists, where are the voices of, of, of artists at this time? I wasn't seeing enough of it. And so I had to comment on the, you know, relative absence of the voice of artists. Interestingly, though, a lot has happened since then in terms of artists getting involved through their work in addressing some of these questions. Of course, Titus Kappa that I mentioned in that article um, was doing what I considered important and significant work. Um, since then, uh, Hank Willis Thomas, you know, has done quite a bit of work, including what I consider one of the most important art projects in the United States right now. And that is this uh, For Freedoms project that uh, he and uh, some of his colleagues established uh, this year ahead of the, mid the, the midterm elections. Now, um, this is art demonstrating its relevance to society. Art is not, for me, something that is limited to uh, art galleries where only the monarch class, you know, would drink their Prosecco wine and look at art and marvel at the creativity. That's all well and good. But for me, art also has to account for why it is significant why it should be considered important, an important aspect of culture, of a people, of a society, of a nation, of our world. And, and so the, the work of uh, some of these um, artists who have basically stepped up, really, to uh, engage with these very important issues and questions of our day. That was what motivated my writing that article, which I eventually elaborated a little bit more in uh, the version that I published in Nkai uh, Journal of Contemporary African Art. Shifting gears, could you speak to the role technology is playing in the art world today? It, it, it plays a very interesting uh, role. Of course, there are different ways of thinking about you know, the incidence of technology in, 
in art and in the work of artists. There are so many artists who have basically embraced technology, whether technology in the sense of mechanized technology or in terms of digital technology. Um, artists who work with um, video games and so forth, artists who work with interactive systems as elements of their work, that's one, one level. But I'm also interested in the role that technology plays in the artistic experience and in teaching art. And what we've seen is an unbelievable transformation in how um, art is taught today. Uh, years ago, um, the technology that art historians relied so much on for teaching art was slide projectors. You know, so you had to have your film slides and you slot them in and you turn on the light and you project it onto a screen enlarged. Um, that worked for decades. But the kind of technology that now allows you to see paintings in incredible details, you know, the surfaces, the cracks, the, the brush strokes, things that you could never see in ordinary slides that digital technology has made that possible. And I remember uh, back um, in the day in, uh, at Penn State, this was the moment when um, JPEG you know, files or TIFF files, and you could uh, use um, PowerPoint to teach art history. Very few people were doing that, and a lot of our colleagues were very critical of this technology, that it's unreliable and so forth. But now there's no way you can teach art history without, um, you know, digital presentation. The other aspect that I find actually quite um, important is that technology has made art a lot more accessible to much wider populations. In the past, to see important artworks, you had to go to the museums that own them, or you had to go to the art galleries that are showing them, or you had to go to the house of the rich man or woman who owned such work. That's the only way you saw important artworks, or you know, you saw some black and white reproduction in, in a book. Now consider what it meant to teach art students in a place like University of Nigeria and Soka, where I was an art student in the 1980s. How could you teach Western art, for instance, when there was no collection, there was no museum, no gallery in Nigeria that owned any important Western art? How could you teach it? Because you couldn't just walk to the museum. And you would be crazy to think that you could get a visa to go to the United States to go and see art at the Met or at the moment. But what has happened now is that you can comfortably teach art at that same University of Nigeria and Soka 
with high definition images of these important holdings of the major museums around the world. Now this is revolutionary because what it has done is that it it has democratized um, in many ways. Of course, there are still parts of the world that have limited access to digital, te digital technology. But compared to what we had before, the, 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 the landscape is a lot more even in terms of access to, to this work. Now, of course, there's always an argument that you have to see the original. In that case, technology cannot help you. But I think that in these various ways, technology has been deeply impactful in the way that artists make work and in the way that uh, the audiences for art across the planet uh, can access art that were formerly in exclusive locations. So you talked about implications for the production of art, how we experience art, also how art is taught, and you've touched on a little bit of discovery and distribution. Maybe talk a more about implications for distribution and discovery of art and, and the broader art market, meaning how the output of an artist, the actual art, is now being found and purchased by those who are buyers in the market. Yeah, um, so we're talking about the market for art. Art has always been about money, although um, it, it, it's hard to you know, see that that's the case when you look at the literature on fine art, right? Um, that it's an aesthetic phenomenon, that it's, it's, um, it, it's something that is beyond the material. But when you look across history, what you will find is that much art that is considered, that was considered, that is considered important, was always tied to political, ritual, economic power. In other words, wealthy and powerful people were very much the supporters, the patrons for important art. Now, this is a way of saying that the fact that for such a long time the work of African artists was not considered important enough to merit serious attention in art history or in the museums or in the newspapers, you know, the art magazines and journals and so forth. That also had to do with the fact that um, it was not considered marketable. It was not considered of value. Now, value in this sense, meaning economic value. What has happened in the past 20 years is the rise of the market for this work, the rise of markets for African art. And you can see that whether you look at the emergence of 
important art galleries on the African continent and outside of the African continent. Galleries in New York, in Berlin, in London, in Paris, and elsewhere that now invite African artists to work with them. This, this did not happen, you know, before the 1990s. We also find another forum, which is the art fairs that have emerged. You know, there's the 154, which is the best known art fair that focuses on contemporary African art. It has had some relative success. It has a lot of room to grow. Um, you also have uh, the biennials, the international biennials, which is where collectors, critics, museums, patrons go to see the you know the latest thing in the art world, the you know the names to watch, the the kind of work that might be important tomorrow if not today. These biennials have also arisen both on the continent in the, you know, take for instance the Dakar Biennale in Senegal, um, formerly the Johannesburg Art Biennial, the Cairo Biennial, now you have Lubumbashi Biennial in the Congo and elsewhere. But more importantly, you also have had international biennials that have increasingly included the work of African artists. And I give you uh, one example. The most important uh, contemporary art exhibition, some people would argue, is Documenta, which takes place in Kassel in Germany every five years. Documenta started in 1955. By 1980, there was Arguably, only one African artist had been invited to participate in this by in this event, which usually includes tens of artists, mostly from the West, and a sprinkling of Japanese or Latin American artists and so forth. Only one African artist, Moe Doga from Cameroon, when Opi Mwezo became the director of Documenta in. 2002, he had no less than 35 African and Black artists in Documenta. And right there, you could see these same artists that many galleries did not pay attention to their work, grasp, grappling to get their attention, to sign them up, uh, to work with them. Now, that's what has happened in, in the field of modern and contemporary African and African diaspora, are that these markets have opened up. Now, African artists are commanding relatively respectable prizes, some significant prizes. When you think of someone like Julie, Julie Meretu, Ethiopian-born, living in New York, she's one of the highest-selling women artists in the world today or Ella Natsui, who lives in Nigeria, or William Kentridge, you know, who lives in Johannesburg. 
So the market has opened up uh, quite a bit, but there's still a lot of work to be done because you still have places like the MoMA and elsewhere that are still not sure how to engage with the work of African and African diasporic artists as an important area of investment and inquiry. We would love to know what are you currently working on? The most important project that I'm working on right now is a big survey of Elanatsui. It's called Elanatsui Triumphant Scale. This is the most uh, extensive exhibition of his work and it's opening at the Haus der Kunst in Munich in March of next year. And of course, there's going to be a substantial publication uh, alongside of this exhibition. Uh, this is a project that has been long in coming, uh, but uh, right now I'm co-organizing it with uh, my friend Okuyen Wezo, and that's my current major project. And how can listeners learn more about you, what you're working on, and stay up to date on, uh, on your work? Uh, they can go to my blog, Ofodunka. Which is a great blog, by the way. Yeah, they can go to my blog, Ofodunka. Or they can catch me on Twitter or on Instagram or go to my official university webpage. Um, and I'm right there. I like to think of myself as someone who lives along the road. You can't miss it. Once you're traveling along the road, you see me. <laughs> by the roadside. We hope you enjoyed the conversation. For more information and latest updates, visit us at luminary.fm or follow us on Twitter at luminaryfm. Please subscribe to the podcast, pop us an iTunes review and share with friends. Don't forget to check out the show notes. And a quick disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this episode by the hosts and the participants are solely those in independent capacity and do not in any way represent the views from any organization, company or management they may be associated with. And thank you for listening.